Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. We have a brilliant guest today in our socially distanced studio, as you're about to see. She's the director of the Equiano Project, and I follow her. Iman, welcome back to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, it's good really to have excited. you back. It's been nearly a year. I introduced you as the director of the Equiano Project, which didn't exist the last time we interviewed you. Uh, what has been going on with you in the last year? Yeah, no, it's been a really, really crazy year, obviously. A lot of people uh, first really heard of me significantly when I kind of intervened in, to an extent in the kind of identity politics debate that was going on um, kind of early last year. And then August, I kind of launched an um, uh, organisation called the, the Equiano Project, slightly in response to the kind of Black Lives Matter protests, but kind of a broader um, desire to kind of hopefully move the conversation forward in regards to kind of identity politics and things like that. So we had our first event, which was attended and uh, guest speakers like Trevor Phillips and Catherine Burble Singh and Aisha Akambi uh, has also been on this show and it was really fantastic. And since then, we've been kind of going into schools and, and speaking to people about how we can respond to many of these really important issues about kind of colonialism and history and race and identity, but from a more kind of humanist, universalist perspective that's not kind of driven ideologically um, solely from a kind of narrow lens of identity politics and kind of race consciousness and that deeply kind of politicised narrative of race. So that's really where, where it's been at. And hopefully lots of new um, exciting projects on, on freedom of speech and, and a lot of these important conversations. You definitely moved the conversation forward when we had you, Aisha and Zubi in, in, in short succession. Uh, we then got kicked out of our, our last studio. So things are moving in the right direction. <laughs> uh, thank you for your help. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think it has been really positive. I think, you know, in the beginning of the conversation, I think a lot of people were, were thinking, where is it going to go? But what we've really seen is so many people from a genuine diversity of backgrounds, ethnic minorities in particular, that are saying that a lot of this conversation doesn't represent them. And actually, just like any group of people, regardless of your background, there's real ideological and political diversity. And that, that fundamentally needs to be heard if we are to kind of really delve into these these questions. So I think it's not been as bad, hopefully, a year later is moved forward. So you think it's actually calmed down a bit now? Or do, do you not think that we're going we're gonna to see another eruption? I think it's a really difficult one. I mean, I mean, two years ago, I, I think very few people would have predicted whether that was kind of COVID or, or even Black Lives Matter. And I guess the nature of kind of society is, is the kind of spontaneity that emerges with it. But I think what has happened now, which seems very different to last year, is that there seems to have emerged many different organisations now in response to a, a lot of these movements. So if something does happen, there's a kind of infrastructure, a social solidarity in place to be able to respond to it and kind of... Um, and bring forth the kind of voices that have a different perspective on these issues. So I think that in terms of the kind of uh, the kind of knowledge about the kind of complexity of the issue that it's moved forward, but there are still so many um, challenges. I think that. For example, you know, one of the things that have now arisen in regards to this conversation very recently has been the kind of conversation around kind of big tech censorship. So we still have um, many significant challenges in, in order to kind of open the conversation around uh, many of these complex issues. So there's still much more to be done, I think. Mm. And well, the obvious question, I suppose, would be given that uh, your project deals with schools, mm. uh, we're seeing in America now particularly, and as we know, whenever they get something, we get it. We used to be five years later, now we get it two weeks later, uh, is critical race theory. Can you explain to people what that is? Yeah, so I, th I think um, a lot of people over the last year have attempted to to make sense of this kind of theory that has often come to shape the conversation about race. I mean, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay are very um, famous for kind of problematizing that the nature of that theory. And it is very complicated, but I think if it's actually what's interesting about it is actually quite logically consistent if you accept some of the premises of it. Mm. So obviously it, it, it kind of posits that um, racism is kind of ever present, embedded in um, every element of society. And so as Helen Pluckrose mentions, it's not kind of did racism happen in a given um, uh, interaction, is how did racism manifest itself? And so, you know, people are, are split up into uh, the oppressor versus oppressed. And, Thank and you for looking at me. At <laughs> yes, she, she focused entirely on you from the moment that she said, how did racism manifest itself? And she yeah. just went... <laughs> I rated it straight up. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's okay. He's used to it. Yeah, it's all right. It's the voice. I know it's the voice. 
You, you've got a delicious shade of gammon there yeah. as well, mate. So yeah. it's perfect. You know, we're just Sorry. messy. You know what? It's such a pleasure to have a human being back in like face to face that we, we just enjoy messing around. But yeah. you're making an important point, which is this is a system mm-hmm. that presumes that racism happens whenever people of different races coexist in the same space. Exactly. Right? And, you know, and your, your, the legitimacy of your voice depends on your positionality, where you mm. stand in relation to dynamics of power and privilege. And each individual is made up of these kind of competing intersections of different uh, interlocking systems of oppression, uh, whether that's your race, your gender, your sexuality. And one of the things I find so um, challenging about this this theory, and it is a theory, it's not fact, um, it is you never become a full human being, you know. And what I mean by that is human beings are never seen in their totality. They're always kind of competing identity categories. And so this makes it very difficult to have a meaningful conversation. It's not human being to human being. It's not this idea that we all have empathy. And that means that we can at least, if not we've, if we've not experienced direct discrimination, we can at least imagine what it might feel like. And that's our human empathy, That the thread that unites us all, regardless of our identity category. And so you could never fully transform send that according to this theory we're always just in this constant loop of kind of competing power dynamics and i don't think that's a context for um human beings to fully exercise their agency and and transcend the kind of identity categories and political abstractions assigned upon them and so you know again the equiano project hopes to really um re-articulate that universalist perspective of, of martin luther king frederick Douglass, booker t washington and, and, and a long tradition that goes a long way and do you think we're at risk of this being introduced into schools? Because I know there's been, the, you know, there's a there's been the issue with Eton, and, you know, and the firing the, that particular teacher. But do you think we're at risk now of this being introduced into state schools up and down the country? I think it's already become incredibly institutionalized. I think, um, for example, we see it in the corporate world with the whole kind of diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. and 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 this kind of uh, seeing people as uh, you know constantly a threat to one another that needs to be micromanaged um, and all of these kind of diversity trainings is an entire industry now and I think understandably you know m- most people I think we've come a long way as a society find racism to be abhorrent and if there's a kind of group of people consistently saying that it's embedded in society and it and it's you know so pervasive then understandably you know people feel that they want to do something about it and so the challenge is now as I kind of alluded to earlier is ensuring that and increasing the kind of platforms for people that have that perspective okay by all means put forward the critical race theory perspective i don't believe it should be censored or removed but as long as we understand that it is one lens for looking at things and there are multiple and i think that's i think what um for example the kind of kemi badenoch um statement where she talked about kind of teaching it as one um objective truth is really the problem as long as you're um demonstrating it along a wide range of views can we then i think get closer to the truth you have to ask a question as well like i'm a former teacher everyone can now drink uh but when we kids are struggling with their literacy, with their numeracy, mm. is this really the thing that we should be using lesson time for? Shouldn't we teach them about geography, history, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Well, absolutely. I think. Um, I mean, one of the subjects that I'm really interested in is the kind of subject of kind of freedom of speech, which is a kind of fundamental um, basis of democracy. And one of another issue that's been really strong amongst younger generations is a kind of suspicion towards freedom of speech. Or any time we think about freedom of speech, is often consistently framed in relation to spreading hate or or um, attacks against minorities and the kind of real kind of virtue and meaning of that has um, become distorted in the conversation and that's something that I think is fundamental to young people's cultivation of their own sense of individuality and agency and so uh, fixating over race on a generation that may well be the most uh, open-minded towards different um, racial groups um, than previous generations perhaps in history I think is is um, is a, a really distracting thing I think there's way 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 more issues I mean particularly in the pandemic that young people are facing right now I mean having their kind of educational life decimated is one um, example and I, I don't think that um, fixating on uh, racism amongst young people is a very productive thing to focus on. Do you think a big part of this is technology because one of the things I have been aware of recently is that the power of technology is so great. And as we record this, this whole GameStop thing is happening, right? Where essentially a bunch of ordinary people have worked out that if you use technology to band together, you can be really powerful. And of course, 
the powers that be want to shut that down. Do you think a big part of this whole attempt to restrict what people say is that modern technology is so powerful that, you know, one person saying something can turn into a thousand per- people saying something, and before you know it, half the country believes something that isn't true, let's say, right? Absolutely. Do you think that's a lot of a lot of the reasons that there's this fear about freedom of expression? I, I think that's a really good question. And I, I think there's a lot of truth in it. I think um, I think we kind of forget that we haven't had social media for, for a very long time. And actually something so revolutionary, like the ability to instantaneously communicate with the entire world and kind of spread that message to the world has transformational um, effects. And I think we are still navigating that territory and kind of figuring out um, what that means. And I do think it absolutely does have very real consequences. So, you know, as you just alluded to, you can say something that may be uh, false, um, particularly in a situation of crisis that we're dealing with. And I think people do have legitimate concerns about what the consequences of that might lead to. But I guess the question is, how do we really respond to that? And I think part of our kind of drive to restrict and to stifle is a kind of lack of confidence in our institutions, in our civic society, um, to be vibrant enough and intellectually um, rigorous enough and dynamic enough to be able to actually um, challenge those things. So our our instinctive response is to just censor it. But obviously, as we've seen, that doesn't work. I think, you know, it's one of the oldest, you know, statements, tricks in the book that if you do censor something, it doesn't stop people from believing it. You know, Mm. you can kind of put your head in the sand, you can ignore it, um, but people still hold those views. And I think that when people um, are not allowed the space to be able to express them, to, um, you know, allow their idea to really um, be refined against the views of other people, then I think, you know, as as many people as have said, it it often moves um, underground. And I think that that's a much more kind of dangerous situation. And I think that a much more confident um, civic life will actually want those views to be be out there and for us to be able to respond to that. And, and, you know, I think it's really hard at the moment because, again, with the kind of lockdown conditions, we don't really have a public square in the same sense. So, you know, what that means is that the the way we can experience people in a much more multidimensional way, such as, you know, going to the pub or going to a kind of event with lots of people and debating isn't there. So the only domain really we have now to really experience even a fraction of another human being is through these kinds of, uh, these channels, these social media channels. So by removing people, you're essentially unpersoning them. You're, You're saying there's no domain in the public square, in the digital public square that exists um, for for you to actually express yourself. And I think that that can um, arise much more kind of dangerous consequences. So what did you make of the consequences of the attack on the Capitol or the whatever, whatever happened, right? The consequences of that, where you start with the, the president of the United States being banned from the platform that he uses to talk to people. Uh, then Parler... Uh, get, gets its service taken down. Uh, then, as I mentioned, GameStop, you get these people trading and that gets called hate speech. The the forums get shut down and whatever. It seems like, uh, and my view isn't that you've got these nefarious people like sitting there in a smoke-filled room, whatever. It just seems like these kids really have got these massive corporations through which we all communicate in their hands and they suddenly go, oh my God, like I have so much power and that's probably quite scary to them and they don't know what to do. And they've got, you know, Sam Harris came out and thanked Jack Dorsey for banning Donald Trump. So you're going, well, if Sam Harris is telling you to ban stuff, Mm. like how do you hold that line exactly? I think it's incredibly difficult. I think that these are really, really um, complex questions. And I think that we're we're in a climate right now where we have kind of narrative warfare. So Mm -hmm. if a kind of event happens, and I think many people like Douglas Murray have spoken about this, if a kind of event happens, there's, um, instead of relying on, again, traditional media to kind of tell us the close to the impartial truth of the events, we have all of these narratives that emerge. And these narratives are often purely kind of ideological in in reading. And so it just becomes a kind of battleground between who's going to, whose narrative is going to really dominate. And so a lot of these uh, kind of big tech companies essentially have to end up choosing, you know, which narrative aligns most to many of their values. And a lot of the time they are this kind of corporate liberal values. And many of those people are saying actually, you know, censor disinformation, censor hate speech, if you don't do this, then you're part of the problem. And I think I think they genuinely are um, in a in a kind of difficult situation. But I do think, you know, I absolutely do believe that they um, kind of bear a lot of responsibility for um, 
I do think that there are incentive structures, you know, within social media companies that kind of um, exaggerate um, the kinds of things that you're um, uh, exposed to in these kinds of echo chambers. And as I said, when we are in a situation where the kind of digital public square is these social media companies, um, then I think it makes that situation much more difficult if you are not being exposed to lots of different viewpoints. And so I think they are in a difficult situation. And I'm not sure that I don't know if the answer is going to be in these social media platforms, because ultimately, you know, for example, with Twitter, it is just kind of one one tweet that you send. That's not that's not a full experience of a kind of human being. That's not a full way to kind of understand one another. I think it's it's unlikely that um, that the social media companies are really now going to be the domain, um, the, the current ones at least, Twitter, where we can really um, have an open climate for, for for different ideas. I think we I think we need new things now. I think that we need to um, start creating new spaces, new open spaces um, where no topics um, are off limits where um, are kind of based off of shared values, not necessarily kind of stale terms of service um, and where we can genuinely um, have conversations with with people from from different ideological backgrounds in, in a much more fuller and, and richer way, not not just just in the form of a kind of message or, or a tweet. And I think that that's where um, I think that the space is really open now for, for much more spaces um, like that in the digital arena. Do we need 3D reality? <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. I think that's what you need. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a great point that you made, but isn't part of the problem now with lockdown in that these companies have become ever more draconian? If you look at someone like YouTube, they've basically said that if you put any form of content criticising lockdown or WHO guidelines or policies, you're going to get struck off. I, I think they're playing, I agree with you. I think it's become absolutely worse. I think we're in a really, really dangerous kind of perilous situation where there's almost, there's very few spaces now where where um, if it's not being overtly censored, there's a kind of pernicious culture of kind of self-censorship and um, where people don't feel comfortable speaking because of fear of the consequences. And that's, you know, what what, what has been spoken about in the past, cancel culture, where this is not a, this is not an imaginary threat that a lot of people would like to believe. It's a real threat for people like, for example, Nick Buckley, you know, who thankfully um, was able to get his, his charity back, that if you do veer away from the orthodoxy, then there is a, a, a real uh, and pernicious threat that you could lose your livelihood. And I think that if we're in a situation now where big tech companies that are unaccountable, um, unelectable and incredibly opaque in terms of their policies have the power to remove people's livelihood, then that's a fundamental free speech issue. And I think that we are in a very dangerous situation. Absolutely. And do you think we could possibly go along the Poland route, which has effectively said mm. that they're going to fine these social media companies if they take down content which doesn't contravene Polish law? I think that that is a possibility. You know, I, I did look into that and I think that's a very, I think that we'll have to see how that actually transpires. I think that, again, the challenge is, is that, and I, I do think there's definitely a role for the state and a role for a kind of top-down response. But I think that um, the, the kind of state intervening in a lot of these issues um, seems quite uh, problematic and complicated for, for various reasons, because freedom of speech, not just has to be protected from a kind of legalistic perspective, which is absolutely important, but it also has to be believed in people's hearts. And I think mm. that that's really um, one of the other challenges that I think um, is also contributing to this current co um, climate, where actually um, the kind of real embodiment of free speech, the kind of spirit of confronting ideas and challenging them in many spaces um, still hasn't been fully um, actualized. And so as much as there could be legal protections, if it's not fully... Um, um, believed in, then we'll still have that, as John Stuart Mill describes, the kind of the tyranny of prevailing opinion. No, that's a really good point because I guess the only way to, to, to change this in the long term is to change the culture, which mm. is what you're saying. And I imagine what you're trying to do with, with their crown of project yes. to get in there at the, at a younger point and try and explain to, to the kids, uh, you know, what, what that's all about. But in the meantime, I mean, I don't have a, I used to have quite a libertarian mindset mm. when it came to these big tech things. But I think we've seen now, you know, you talk about these new spaces. Mm. Parler tried to create one, didn't end so well, mm -hmm. right? Do you see what I'm saying? So I, I, I don't see how that gets fixed without government intervening and, and whatever else it might be. Well, so this is, um, uh, you know, a, another thing that has been uh, something that I've been really working on for, for the past year now 
And I think that um, I, I don't think I do think there's definitely a role for, for government, but I do think there's got to be a collaborative kind of civil society response. And I think, for example, the stuff that trigonometry are doing are amazing in terms of facilitating these conversations. But I think civil society um, also has to play a really significant role in kind of pushing back against this to kind of cultivate this um, this bottom up response. And so there is a project as well um, that with the Free Speech Union and, and the Battle of Ideas charity that myself and a lot of other young people have actually been working on for nearly a year now. And it's launching um, called Free Speech Champions. And I'm really, really excited about this project because it's a is a kind of nationwide initiative in order to kind of encourage free speech and very much from the bottom up um, focus on kind of younger people. And I think that there are real kind of practical material ways that we can do this. So, for example, one of the things that we're, we're, we're doing is cultivating a group of called free speech champions. The champions themselves are these young people between the kind of ages of 18 uh, to 30 that really believe in free speech from a kind of diverse range of perspectives that go out um, into kind of schools, universities and these places to kind of spread the message about why it's important and hopefully bring um, more young people together. But not just that providing the information, the resources, uh, the, the kind of everything that's needed to actually really campaign for it. So, for example, one of the things that we've done on the website is to um, have a guide to how to set up a free speech society, how to campaign for free speech on campus. Because I think that when we think about free speech, um, it, it's such a big topic. But I do think there's lots of little things that people can do collectively to really actually start to change the culture. And I think it is it is a legal question. And I think there was a, a thing in the Express recently of Priti Patel perhaps wanting to do something with the hate speech laws. Mm. But there has to be something and um, very much from the bottom up and creating those spaces, whether online or in in the actual rural public square where people can't, there are no forbidden topics so people can really express themselves because I think that's a kind of fundamental prerequisite for, for real human agency, for really um, exploring the kind of depth and scope of our humanity because I think without it, um, you know, social and human progress, you know, is incredibly diminished. So there, there's possibilities out there and I think um, a collaborative endeavour um, with people across the political spectrum, you know, in the form of kind of free speech champions to really push back against this, I think could, could really be the start of something quite significant. Francis, did you know that investing is one of the best ways to preserve your wealth over the long term? What's wealth? Something you will never find out as long as I have control of the trigonometry account. However, if you do have wealth, high commission and clunky products from traditional stockbrokers make it very difficult for people like me to start investing. Good. For everyone else, though, Free Trade has come up with an award-winning app that is currently being used by over 250,000 people. It's FCA-approved and FSCS-protected. It's brilliant. It allows you to trade commission-free. Free Trade has won Best Online Trading Platform at the British Bank Awards two years in a row, 2019 and 2020. They offer no speculative products, no spread betting, no day trading. It, it's all about preserving and growing your wealth over the long term. No hidden fees, transparent pricing structure, very simple to use. You can sign up for a general investment account or a stocks and shares ISA. Or sign up to Free Trade Plus for more advanced order types and a bigger stock universe. They've also got other new products coming soon. You can get a universe. Go to freetrade.io slash trigger, register and fund your account, and you'll get a randomly allocated free share worth between three and 200 pounds. Could be in a great company like Rightmove, Apple, even Greg's. Greg's sold. When you invest, your capital is at risk. The value of your investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than you originally invested. You knew that bit off by heart. I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but I'm going to say this. Do, do you not uh -oh. think... Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it sounds, again, my voice. But do you not think that the, the label free speech mm. has actually been tarnished to the point that immediately when people hear it, they go, oh, it's just some, you know, right-wing bloke, you know, with a swastika who just wants to drop M-bombs? Yes, I, it is. It is really unfortunate. And I think, you know, one of the things about the kind of culture wars that has been really frustrating is that a lot of people think, you know, people in the culture wars want to weaponize free speech. But, it, you know, in my view, I think free speech has been more a victim of the, of the culture wars mm -hmm. than, than a weapon of it. And so I, I think I think it has to be reclaimed. You know, I, I don't think that we should be able to, they should be able to cede linguistic territory where we're not able to use 
that are the language that is widely understood to express concepts that are also widely understood. And I think when we see that linguistic territory again, then we're, we're in a much more difficult position to push back against it when we don't actually have the words to really describe it. And so free speech, um, you know, is not a dirty word. It's a, is a fundamental bedrock of, of a kind of free and open democratic society. And we should be really confident in articulating that. This is such an obvious point, but the fact that you have to explain it is, is kind of mind blowing in a way. No, it absolutely is. And so you're going into schools, you've been working with these kids. So how do they perceive free speech? Do they see it as something that should be celebrated or a tool of white oppression or whatever it is? Yeah, so the, so the Free Speech Champions um, project, it, it launches on the 1st of February. But even before that, um, you know, I, I was going into schools and speaking about free speech. And what's been really interesting, and I think there was uh, also some research that was done about it, it which was that, um, you know, when you actually articulate the arguments um, about free speech, then people are much more um, compelled by them. Just kind of saying, you know, believe in free speech, you know, it's really important. Does It's not that convincing because I don't think the kind of substance of the meaning has really been conceptualised and really grasped. But when you really, um, you know, explain the fact that, for example, social movements the world over... Um, free speech has been essential for them to actually challenge the institutions and um, that were kind of subjugating them by articulating their suffering or or, or it, it's necessary for the kind of uh, the challenging of orthodoxies and rigidity um, and, and so it's, there's something incredibly radical about it or you know Greg Lukianov talks about free speech as the eternally radical idea and young people that are often you know wanting to, to both, both in some senses be conformist but also be perceived as the kind of new radicals I think that actually when free speech is articulated in a way that um, it, it's not, you know, something, you know, dull or boring or inevitable. It's actually something that we have to fight for um, every single day because in many senses it's, it's against all odds. And so I think going back perhaps to those kind of core foundational um, principles and um, rediscovering, I think, um, a lot of these kind of heroic stories, um, the kind of traditions of the past and thinking about what, what it was about the past that needs to be interrogated but really we articulate it for the present day and, and positioning ourselves in that historical trajectory, um, I think is really compelling to a lot of young people. And so I think, I think there, there's a lot of scope for it. Do you think it's also quite fertile ground? Because, you know, you, you have the twit people in their 20s who are uber woke, very liberal, don't want to upset, don't want to be offensive. And do you think you're going to get a reaction from the generation below who are like, mm, fuck that, I'm going to say what I want, almost as a rebellion? Oh, I think that I, I really hope so, because I think now the the um, the climate has become so restrictive. There's so many taboos. There's so many. You can't say that. You shouldn't say that. You can't offend these people. I think that's exhausting. I think it's really exhausting to be. Um, I mean, you know, I'm soon not going to be a young person in a couple of years. But I mean, the, the young people that have completely um, grown up on social media where, um, you know, from a very young age, you know, they're comparing themselves to other people. You know, there's all of these new labels and terms. I think that there's I think hopefully a new generation will begin to reject that rigidity as this kind of orthodoxy. It is very much um, the dominant culture now. And, and so it's, it's not something new or edgy to be um uh, you know, vulnerable and highly offensive and paternalistic. It is actually something, you know, incredibly conformist and, and boring. Mm. It'll be interesting to see what you find when you when you roll the project out mm. across the country because we do keep hearing this narrative now that you, the next generation are mm. really not work at all, uh, <laughs> which is interesting to me. That sort of makes logical sense that it would be that way, but you kind of need to see it happening, don't you? Yeah, I, I think it is, you know, the territory of the space of the project right now is it, very, it's like it's like a baby, you know, it, it's very new and I'm, I'm really excited to see where, where it's going to go. But I really encourage like, you know, young people that are really um, interested and curious and open-minded and, and wanting to to explore to, to kind of join the project and find out more about it because I think that there's there's a lot of scope and I think that I think it is possible that that people younger especially having grown up um, in perhaps you know having come to adulthood or come to maturity in in a kind of COVID situation that may well be the the most uh, one of the most restricted when it comes to liberty that that any of us may have ever experienced mm. that um you know what are the possibilities that kind of lie beyond this moment and, and how do we navigate that and I so I think that I think a lot of young people hopefully would be asking those questions that surely this isn't inevitable. Surely we don't have to accept the the premise that um, human beings uh, must be uh, under such stringent restrictions, whether that's 
you know, from an institutional level, but from a kind of cultural and ideas level, um, inevitably. It's interesting. Well, I mean, the kids obviously are not going to learn any maths. At least they'll learn about free speech right now, won't they? Have you ever been abroad and felt out of place because you didn't speak the language? No, because I voted Brexit. Brexit means Brexit. I know that sometimes you're abroad, you don't speak the local language, it's very awkward, like Francis talking to a woman. So you have to shout, do you want to learn another language? I don't, for obvious reasons. But if you do, Babbel is quite simply one of the finest language learning apps in the business. Babbel offers a clear and easy to use interface. They have daily 10 to 15 minute lessons that have been proven effective across many studies showing that you can learn up to 14 languages that they offer. So it doesn't matter if you struggle with language. Maybe you find it difficult to pick up or maybe you're just English. Right now, Babbel is offering our fans six months free on a six month subscription with Babbel using our special code, which is, of course, Trigger. That's Babbel. B A B B E L dot co dot UK slash play and use the promo code Trigger. Look at that spelling. He learned English on Babbel. I did. But seriously, go to babbel.co.uk forward slash play, use our code Trigger and enjoy Babbel. I'm curious, you mentioned the institutions, and this is something Francis and I have discussed quite a bit. It seems to me like what we're really talking about is different facets of the culture war, different fronts perhaps on it. Mm-hmm. And the, the organizations that you've been involved with yeah. through the Free Speech Union and now the Free Speech Champions Project, they they seem to me like institutions that are are waging that battle. Do you think the answer here inevitably has to be institutional because so much of this, what you might call woke stuff, has become institutionalized in the media, in government, almost everywhere now, in education, of course, uh, that you have to fight fire with fire or you have to fight institutions with other institutions? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. I think that um, I think a lot of people do think that the kind of um, the institutions have become beyond repair, have become um, corrupted. But I, I'm, I'm not so sure because I think that ultimately the institutions um, are fluid insofar as they're made up of people. And so if the people that um, uh, encompass or, or animate those institutions, um, their, their views uh, shift or their views become more open, then I think hope by definition the institutions themselves should. And I think, you know, we've, we've gone through worse things as a society, you know, whether that was, you know, the Cold War or, or even previously that have really kind of challenged and forced us to question, um, who we are, um, as a society. And so I think, I think I, I don't lose faith. Um, in those institutions, because a lot of them have um, a, a very long history, whether that is in the media or various cultural establishments. But I do think there is space um, for new ones um, and uh, based off of different values that are much uh, more confident in articulating them. And I think that's really one of the elements, um, people that are, are confident in, in standing up for these things and are not afraid um, and, and are willing to withstand, unfortunately, sometimes the assault that happens. And so I think I, I don't give up on the institutions that exist, but absolutely new ones that are much more authoritative in their defence of um, what they believe to be true and their values it, it, it is absolutely um, needed. And the Free Speech Union is one of those ones that is making a really positive impact. Well, right. That's what I was going to say. What I mean is I'm not so much for tearing down the BBC or whatever. You know, I'm not obsessed with that. <laughs> not but- judging by your Twitter. Feed, <laughs> <laughs> no, I've held the line. I've held the line on the BBC. I think they've gone in the wrong direction, but I still think they're important. But... Uh, something like the Free Speech Union is not an alternative to the BBC. Mm. What what the Free Speech Union does is it allows people who have spoken their mind mm. in the wrong place at the wrong time to not have their life destroyed. You know, Counterway, which Helen Plucker has yeah. just yeah. launched. It, you know, we've just had her on the show. Again, things like that, where you're creating an avenue for people to be able to express themselves freely mm. and be protected from... Uh, the consequences of the existing prevailing orthodoxy, you know? I, I completely agree. And I think that's been one of the w- reasons why it's been so hard for a lot of people who who do disagree with what's going on, but have not necessarily stood up because of the lack of solidarity. And I think that, um, you know, it's always going to be throughout history and presently a minority of individuals individuals that kind of rise up to the level of being able to kind of withstand. For example, Toby is one of them. You know, mm-hmm. he's experienced, you know, so much and he, he's, he's a kind of fighter. Um, but not everyone's like that. And not everyone 
necessarily should be like that because there's different ways of approaching this conversation. And one of the things, again, with Free Speech Champions is is um, bringing together other young people that can provide support and solidarity and, and encourage and really delve into these ideas together in a really deep and, and, uh, and kind of profound way. And so when you have those spaces, as you mentioned, like Counterway, that um, you know, creates uh, forms of bonds and solidarities with people that are around a kind of common cause, then again, that that gives people more confidence to do things. And so I think it's a process. I think it's absolutely, um, I think, you know, last year, a lot of people, a lot of us kind of perhaps weren't necessarily as prepared as we could for the challenges that have kind of come about. But now a year later, there's much more of a vibrant kind of civic community um, that are, are wanting to do something and to stand up. And isn't this partly just as well a, a basic fundamental, which is not kowtowing to bullies? Yeah, no, I think so. I think, you know, that... Um, when people think that um, there is no, there's not going to be a, a con- any consequence, or there's not going to be a response, then they are um, empowered to, to to kind of bully people. And I do think you're. I think that the word bully it is a very um, good one. And I think um, you know Douglas Murray. I think in an interview in, in trigonometry actually mentioned this about related to the gender debate, which is um, you know how people are kind of uh, often you know, there's something demoralising about people being compelled to lie um, and, and how um, in some senses that kind of reduces um, our own kind of sense of our own humanity as we're not able to fully participate in kind of shaping um, the conversation and the world. And I think that anyone that encourages people to, to keep quiet, to keep their mouth shut, is, is, a, is doing very destructive things and, and messing with things I think they, they very much shouldn't. Mm. Yeah, it's a powerful point. It is. It so is. The, when Douglas talked about it, he was quoting, quoting Solzhenitsyn. That's what he mm-hmm. talked about. That every time you lie, it has an impact on the whole world. No, yeah. and, and you know that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and you that's feel what's it. so dangerous about it. Exactly, and you feel it, and then you contribute. Yeah, to creating a society that is ultimately dishonest because people are not speaking what they believe to be true. And what would you say to somebody who's like, "Look, okay, this lie is this is dishonest." What I'm saying but it's the kind thing to do. If we do that, we don't hurt someone's feelings. We don't distress them, which is the counter argument to this. Yeah. So I think that um, there's two things I'd say. I think that we've moved away from the realm of politeness. You know, this isn't, this isn't, we're not talking about people being nice to each other and polite. I think the overwhelming majority of people in their everyday interactions are polite. I think what what this is, is a a very, is a uh, stifling and and pernicious pressure to, to not say anything. Um, even even if the consequences are even negative. Um, and so I think that that is um, um, a different thing. But also, in some sense, you know, there's a price for freedom. And I think that even though I do articulate the kind of positive case for free speech, um, you know, the phrase, you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, because actually there is something um, dangerous about freedom. There is something actually quite scary. I mean, why, why would you want to hear... Um, what somebody else thinks because that might fundamentally challenge everything that you believe or, or the the identity or the narrative about the world that you've um, come to construct about yourself there's something incredibly confronting about that and so I think there is a price you know fr- freedom of speech and freedom isn't always you know sitting around tea hearing having lovely conversations sometimes you will be exposed to the alarming to the to the scary to the intimidating to the offensive but that exposes us to the real reality of our humanity, which is both incredibly evil and incredibly good. And we should want to rise to confront um, that real reality. And, and But there is indeed a price for that. And just going back, so if I just finish this, with the free speech champions, isn't that a real challenge you're going to face? Because mm. a lot of these kids, they're very mollycoddled. They're the most mollycoddled generation. Mm. They want to be wrapped up in cotton wool. They don't want anything to challenge them. Isn't that going to be very difficult for your project? I think that... Um, uh, I think it could be, but I would say that um, I'm not so sure how many young people really are like that. I think that there is a kind of minority that dominate the conversation about, um, you know, creating cushions around everything and safe spaces and trigger warnings and no one should um, be uh, offended. But I think I do think a substantial um, uh, kind of amount of young people are either indifferent or, or, or actually very curious uh, and so are, are perhaps waiting for or, or would grab at the opportunity if it was in a way that was done that they believe perhaps reflects um, their values to kind of um, really engage with these ideas. So I think um, I'm not sure I agree with um, the, the, the kind of view of young people that is like that. I think a minority are that often dominate the conversation but I think give, given the, the right space and the right circumstances I think as any generation um, young people could 
um, rise up to the level of actually um, confronting these challenges and really engaging in these conversations. Mm, we have a lot of young people who watch the, the interviews we do and live streams. And that's how you know they've got irresponsible parents. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was going to ask you, do you think this technology question has been bugging me and I'm just thinking out loud here. Do you think maybe people like us are being a little bit naive because there is so much information now on the web, right, that you are not, no matter how intelligent, how well-educated you are, you're not capable of processing all of the information available, even on one issue. Whatever issue you take, you cannot physically read every article in The Guardian and every article in The Spectator and every article in between about that issue. And so no matter how hard you try to to be open-minded and to listen to other points, your natural biases are always going to draw you into back into that echo chamber. Do, do you think maybe we're just, like, you're very optimistic. I am very naturally optimistic. Him, not so much, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's worked out great for him for the last year and a half. It really has. He calls himself Foster Damas now. <laughs> I've been right. I've been proved right on everything. He's enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, I've not been able to say anything about it. But do you think that people like us who are naturally, you know, fundamentally optimistic about mm. society just massively underestimate how powerful technology is and what a powerful impact it has on our brains, it has on our behavior, it has on everything? Mm. So I think um, a couple of things. So that's why I think it's been really unfortunate seeing um, the way in which a lot of the uh, mainstream media, so to speak, has actually moved to be much more uh, partisan so, or, or, or less um, sticking to that kind of impartiality. Because I do think I do think um, as much as I you know, might critique uh, a lot of the things of the legacy media, I think it absolutely has a fundamental role to play. And I think it's really important um, to be able to kind of rise above a lot of the kind of conflicting narrative warfares that go on and actually present that information in a way that is as close to the truth or as close to the truth as it reveals itself to them as possible. And I think that if we do have and if those institutions do actually um, reconnect with their fundamental basis, which is to actually provide um, solid, reliable information, then I think that that is a really, really strong thing as a society. But I do think um, I agree with you in terms of the way um, that the power of big tech, I absolutely do think that. But I think that the response to that as I alluded to earlier, is um, a, a robust civil society. And we don't have that. We just have one element now where everything is digitized in the sense that, um, you know, with the, with the kind of conditions at the moment where everything we get is through the internet. Everything, all of our communication is through the internet. All of the, even school, university, everything is there. And I think that we, we need to have a counter to that, which is real, which is physical, which is dynamic, which is interactive, which is away from any of those conversations. And so I think that when this is balanced, the kind of civic life, then that kind of works in a, in a kind of good dynamic motion with technology. But when it's just only technology, which ultimately is controlled by private corporations, then there's there's no accountable power. So I think that the, the building of civil society and the public square again um, will, will be a counterweight to that. I was going to ask you something else. Um, you That's were, sort of your job, mate. Yeah, it is. <laughs> good point. I'm going to do my job right now. Uh, you you were in America covering the election yes. somewhat. Uh, what do you think will be the impact of a Biden presidency uh, on all the things that we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was very... Um what that was another really interesting thing about going into America due to the kind of, as I mentioned, the lack of public square. Because when I was there, it was really hard to know wh where it was going to go. You know, I, I had no idea because you had no real feel of what, what people were thinking because there wasn't um, much going on at the time. And I think, um, I, you know, I had many of the worries on a kind of personal perspective that kind of many people described in terms of the kind of rise of, of kind of institutional capture and the kind of fusion of um kind of the political institutions with the already shifting culture of, uh, of kind of wokeness in, in the kind of cultural establishment. And, and that being institutionalized in politics was something that was really kind of worrying to me. And I've also been, you know, quite, uh, I think Biden's hired a lot of um, big tech kind of CEOs and things like that. So that's a kind of very close relationship. But ultimately, uh, you know, I think I, I, I wish him, I wish him luck. Um, I, I wish that he, uh, I, I hope that he heeds the calls that a lot of people have said, 
um, in terms of railing this in, but I, I'm, I'm very worried about it. I mean, we've already heard about, you know, equity um, and, you know, them prioritizing uh, uh, racial groups in the kind of vaccination program. And so if it does continue down um, that line of, you know, rabid identity politics, then I think the divisions that we've already seen will only um, continue. And on top of that, you know, Biden, as much as he, you know, frames himself and many people frame him as a kind of new, lovely, old old man face to the, the darkness we've experienced. Um, you know, he, he is very deep um, into the kind of um, the kind of uh, institution, the old kind of political establishment of America. You know, we're talking, you know, he's been a politician for about 50 years or more and very much part of the military industrial complex and all of that kind of foreign policy network from decades ago. And so, you know, I, I, I worry that the divisions will continue. And I also think um, uh, I, I understand a lot of people's concerns about the kind of extreme elements of, of the Trump supporters. But I think um, I don't think the response is this kind of ramping up of the kind of domestic terrorism rhetoric, um, which is in some senses feels um, like uh, some of the very same problems which led to uh, the, the kind of pre-2016 conditions, which led to the reaction um, in, in embodied in Trump. And so unless people get serious about um, really trying to understand the reasons why so many people um, voted for perhaps a candidate that doesn't fit the kind of traditional um, conception of a politician, then I think we could be in for a very, um, a, a much more negative road. And as, you know, in Britain, as we mentioned earlier, you know, we, we often experience the blowback of American kind of cultural hegemony. And so it, it's in our interest to um, encourage um, real meaningful unity, not just unity in its rhetoric, but unity in the sense of taking a broad range of American citizens' concerns genuinely seriously. And you use the words equality and equity. I mean, these are words that are bandied about. I don't think a lot of people would actually know the difference. What is the difference between equality and equity? And why is one positive and one negative? Mm. So I think I think Jordan Peterson articulate, articulates it quite well in the difference between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity. So equality of opportunity is what we is the kind of liberal idea of equality, where you um, you, you don't differentiate. You know, everybody has the opportunity to, for example, go into, uh, for example, a, a, an elite university, um, and and if, if they get the grades you know, um, regardless of your background, then you have an equal opportunity against another person to get in. And, and, and we strive towards achieving that. It's more of an ideal than obviously an, an exact reality. And the quality of outcome, which is essentially equity, which is that, you know, you take, for example, the proportion of, a, of the population by race and all um, institutions must um, fit exactly at the kind of elite level or the top level of those institutions, regardless of how many people from that background apply, in some senses. Let's get some Jews in the Premier League. <laughs> yeah. I'm down for that. Like, I'll be the one Jew, yeah. statistically. You're not, you're not playing for West Ham, mate. Thank, you. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Oftentimes, you know, regardless of if they even have the grades. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, that is the undoing of the very hard, hard fought for kind of equality of opportunity, which was seeing people primarily as individuals, not as members of competing identity categories. And I think that will only kind of ferment the sense of resentment um, that some feel that there's not fairness across the board. Mm. And so I, I, I'm, I'm strongly... Well, there's not the desire for fairness. That's what I think, that's what will put a lot of people off. It, it's deliberately discriminatory well, by its very nature. Absolutely. And I think this is a similar thing, you know, again, going back to kind of even free speech, how I think resentment builds when there's double standards, right. mm. you know, and I think when people feel like, you know, it's not being applied equally, then that's when that division and polarization starts to increase. Because I think, I think we all have an instinctive sense of fairness fairness and not just the people that are victims of the unfairness i think the people that are exploiting the way that it's unfair are, are, are again playing with things that are, often have a very dark backlash uh, and so i'm a big believer in equality of opportunity i'm um, not not equity as mm. such i mean coming back to your previous point as well about trump and biden and all of that i think one of the things people massively underestimate and france neither francis or i are big trump fans by any stretch of the imagination got a lot of flack for saying so <laughs> but but the reality is that the only reason in my view that biden won was coronavirus mm. if you take that out of the equation 
It's not like people suddenly went, you know what, wokeness is great, mm. right? Th that didn't happen. No, exactly. Right? So those resentments, not only are they still there, as you say, quite likely to be a bit exacerbated by some of these policies. Absolutely. And I think, um, and, you know, even just what we said about double standards, you know, I, I you know, the, the, what happened in Capitol Hill, as, as many people across the political spectrum, which has been quite striking, mm. has actually condemned it. And we didn't actually see that. A lot of the violence um, in, in the kind of summer last year wasn't always kind of universally condemned. Mm. Um, She's so diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> you put that so gently. It wasn't always, you know, it was never condemned by anyone. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, carry on. <laughs> but, you know, people aren't stupid. Yeah. You know, they see that. Right. And, and, you know, and we're not talking about, um, you know, someone being rude on Twitter. We're talking about real world violence that led to people dying. You know, mm. that is horrendous. And, and if people are not, if there's not a sense that there are, that as, as you said, it is being applied equally and, and people are, and, a, and it's only based off of political lines, your, your decision to condemn, then I, I, I think, you know, I think that that's a recipe for deep, deep, deep division. And so I think, you know, the Democrats have an opportunity here and I'm not going to wish them negatively. You know, I want the country to do well. Um, but um, I, I, I worry that, um, you know, the, there's a lot of hubris and, um, and or a lot of ignoring um, the, the, the real uh, uh, reasons why we've got to this point as a society. So I, I hope that they really do heed those calls. Yeah. But, um, you know, as, as everyone, the, the, it's been very unexpected, all of the changes that have happened in the last couple of years. So we don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Well, a nice conciliatory message to end the show on. Uh, before we ask you our last question, just tell everybody if they're a young person or indeed if they're an, an older person, how they can get involved and support the Free Speech Champions project, which you're launching. Yes, go to freespeechchampions.com. If you're a young person, apply to become a Free Speech Champion. If you're anybody, join join the Free Speech Network and, and we want to work collaboratively you know, across the country and even beyond to really uh, manifest a much more open and, and free inquiry and, and, and the promotion of free speech. So please, please check the website, freespeechchampions.com. Fantastic. And we always uh, end with the same question, which is what is the one thing we're not talking about that we really should be? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think one thing we're not talking about is I think that this is the same one that I actually said last time I was here. But we're still not talking about yeah. it. So. <laughs> so it's fine. I think the answer, I think the similar one that I said last time it, is agency. I think the view of human beings, um, whether that, you know, is COVID or, or even long time before that, as kind of weak and vulnerable and, and, um, and, and, you know, unable to deal with the realities of life, um, is a very different view of the human subject to the heroic stories of before. And I think human beings are capable of, of much more and, and great things. And, and we should, uh, we should champion that. I think that's a really important point, actually, because I don't think it's true to say that human beings aren't weak and vulnerable in certain circumstances, but does it empower you to think of yourself in that way, mm -hmm. right? And that is that is such an important thing because your mindset affects then your reality. Absolutely. You know, it's a really good point. So we will start talking about it now that you've mentioned <laughs> it twice. Inaya Falaniman, thank you so much thank for coming you. back. Thank you for having me. And thank you for watching. We will see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one. And they always go out at 7pm UK time. Take care and see you soon, guys. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.